Tonight, we're welcoming two distinguished speakers for a public conversation. I'm sure you know who they are. Adam Van Doren, who studied architecture at Columbia University with Robert A.M. Stern before pursuing his vocation as a painter of the built environment. His selection of canvas and paper over concrete and steel has been felicitous. And Mr. Van Doren's artworks now grace the Art Institute of Chicago, the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, the Wadsworth Athenaeum, and many other collections. A fellow and teacher at Yale, a contributor to the New York Times and to American Artist Magazine, and the author of previous books, such as An Artist in Venice, Mr. Van Doren will be sharing with us tonight his experience in preparing his latest achievement, the insightful and exquisitely illustrated volume, The House Tells the Story, Homes of the American Presidents. Our second speaker this evening is the author of the book's introduction, our nation's great historian and public intellectual, David McCullough who, intriguingly, considered a career in fine art before becoming a writer, thanks to a felicitous encounter with Thornton Wilder while still an undergraduate at Yale. Mr. McCullough's choice of vocation, like Mr. Van Doren's, was wise. His memorable books have enriched our national understanding and have garnered two Pulitzer Prizes, two National Book Awards, two Francis Parkman Prizes, and the Presidential Medal of Freedom, a list I have greatly abbreviated in the interest of time. Please join me in welcoming David McCullough and Adam Van Doren to the stage. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> ah, rough crowd we got here tonight. <laughs> um, I am going to start this off because I have been a, uh, an active, uh, uh, privileged uh, customer here for a very long time. This wonderful institution, I've done much of my research here over the years. And I think the world of so many of the people on the staff. And I'm also uh, very uh, convinced that one of the ways, the best ways for people to learn history and to feel history is to go where it happened. And there's something about being in the same place, particularly if the place mattered personally to the, to the participant, to the to the figure of our interest in the past. And I've spent a lot of time in the presidential homes of the presidents that I've written about, Harry Truman, John Adams, Theodore Roosevelt, George Washington, and Thomas Jefferson. And it's, um, architecture is in many ways like music. It's around you. And it would be as if you were trying to write about somebody in the 1920s and you didn't bother to listen to the music of the 1920s. You need to, you need to get that sense of their environment and what mattered to them. We have to, um, we have to think clearly about how much we have to do, how much work we have to do 
in bringing our younger Americans up to standards in what they know about the story of their own country. We've fallen quite behind. I've lectured at probably well, well over 100 colleges and universities over the last 25 years, and I know whereof I speak. Uh, my, uh, I guess my favorite example would be a question-and-answer period that followed after a talk I gave at a university in California. And one of the, the most memorable questions of the night was, aside from Harry Truman and John Adams, how many other presidents have you interviewed? <laughs> Appearances notwithstanding, I did not know either gentleman. But in both cases of John Adams and Harry Truman, going to their homes, going to where they lived, and where much happened aside and apart from uh, their political lives, but the much that uh, touched them deeply is to be felt and to be and to learn about. And um, right down the way here in Quincy, the Adams House is not only just the nest, the home, the retreat the sanctuary of John Adams, but of his son, John Quincy Adams, and then, of course, later on, the great writer and philosopher, Henry Adams. There's a door on the second floor where John Adams and his wife, Abigail, waited outside the door, on the other side of which their daughter, Nabby, was having a mastectomy without any anesthetic because there were none then. And John Adams said he felt like he was living in the book of Job. It was one of the most agonizing experiences of all three of those lives, and it happened right in that house. And unless you go there and see how real that hall, that room, that door still are, you never quite sense that there is more to the story of these people than we know. And once you know more to the story of the story, you don't forget them. And you learn from them. And you learn not just about American history, you will learn life lessons. And uh, so Adam and I first met uh, in New York at an historic a gathering one evening, got talking, realized how much we had in interest that was similar, and began talking some more about his work and his art and his interest in architecture, my own interest in art and architecture, particularly watercolor painting. And one thing led to another, and we got talking about how stories the stories of houses are often overlooked as part of the reality of the architectural monument that still stands. And then we moved on to presidential homes. And I don't believe you had ever been to one. No. And I suggested that being a New Yorker, that he start off with Hyde Park, Roosevelt's home 
up on the Hudson. And time went by. We weren't seeing each other much and not having a chance to catch up. And all of a sudden, back in 2011, I received a letter from Adam describing his visit to Hyde Park. And it was not only a wonderful letter about Hyde Park, but it was brilliantly, charmingly illustrated. I'd never received a letter like it in my life. <laughs> and it was a treasure. It was a, a work of art, but also a work of literature, all in one, all in one envelope, came through the mail. <laughs> so we met again, and I said, you got to keep going. How about a whole series of letters on the homes of the presidents? And he was off and running. And the result is this marvelous book. And there has never been anything like it, not even close to like it. Because so much of what's been done about the presidential homes has been very stiff and very formal and or very conventional, either in photography or art. Very little art of any consequence ever. And so I feel that we have with us tonight a man of real genius who has brought to us, all of us, his talent and his humor and his perception of the human side of history in a way nobody else ever has. And I think that it's time now for the maestro to take over. Well, thank you. My goodness. Thank you, David. I feel like I'm at the Academy Awards now, and I'm very pleased this is being videotaped so I can review this all. Uh, and uh, yes, our mutual affection for history and each other and our interest in art uh, spurred this on, and David is. Uh, his infectious enthusiasm got me to do more and more of these letters. I started with a few. Now, I do this as sometimes a, a fun thing with some friends. I make little drawings on letters. But he got so such a kick out of it that I started doing more and more. And I sometimes sent three or four of these over the course of uh, several months on these visits. But uh, it was so exciting to ha hear his enthusiasm and, and then talk. And it was a way to also open up about his thoughts about those homes. He had been to many of these. Some he hadn't been, and that was also thrilling. Uh, we'll be talking about some, like the Calvin Coolidge home, which he had never been to, and he got very interested. So that was exciting that I was teaching him, he was teaching me, um, and uh, it was through the good old-fashioned mail service. You know, he doesn't use email, as I don't know, some of you know. He's written all his books on the same manual typewriter since 1961, if that's right. <laughs> yeah. And the typewriter's from 1940. <laughs> so, uh, and good for him. He, that, and so, so we also shared that interest. But the, the power of being at a place is so strong, especially these homes, and not all of them have the exact items in it that the presidents have. And that's how I would go in sometimes, and then when I didn't find that, those originals and there were replicas, you know, your heart drops. The house is, of course, interesting, but the objects, too, can have great life to them. And you know, I may do with that and, and saw all the other aspects of it, but those original objects and the original house is so exciting, uh, certainly for us. And I think it's a natural instinct for most people, but maybe they don't get out to these things. Now on a computer, you can do a virtual tour of all these houses, you know, and never go there at all. But I think lastly on that topic is um, 
there's also magical things that happen when you go to a place that you don't expect. There are all sorts of things that happen that we'll talk about here that happened when I spent two, three, four days there. I met people, I saw things that the house curators didn't even know they had. I met, uh, uh, in one case, well, we'll talk about it, an actor who impersonated one of the presidents. I didn't, I didn't know that person was going to be there. I even met a living president at one of these houses, which we'll talk about. Didn't know that was going to happen either. So you open yourself up to all sorts of uh, adventures, if you You will. sure do. And, um, <laughs> and it's, it's, uh, you limit yourself. Not everyone can spend three or four days at a house, but uh, even going on a tour is worth something. But if you can, of course, um, it's worth it. And I'll just say a final thing, which is funny about, he mentioned about the lack of knowledge of history these days with, 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 with young people. Uh, we were just talking about in the car. I don't know if you followed this recent controversy at Yale where one of the colleges at Yale, it's divided up into many small colleges, is called Calhoun College. And there's a controversy now by saying that it's named after John C. Calhoun, who was you know, pro-slavery and all of that, and the college wants to get rid of that uh, name, potentially. I don't know where it's going at this point. But David's remark, which was funny, I said, what do you think of that? He said, I think it's great that they know it's John C. Calhoun. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I, I've got to mention the surprises that happened. When I was working on my book about Harry Truman, I spent much of my time in independence, both at the Truman Library and over at the house. And uh, as, as uh, Adam knows, in the kitchen of the, of the uh, Truman House, there's a big crack right down the middle of the linoleum uh, floor. And instead of having the linoleum replaced, uh, the Trumans simply had someone come in and tack it down very carefully. And it's still there. And, and then you go upstairs, as I was allowed to do, which was not open to the public at that point. I don't think it is now. And there'd be this, these little wooden chairs with a wicker seat, and the wicker had long since been destroyed or given out. So they didn't replace the wicker, they just put a pillow on it. <laughs> and, and, the, and of course the answer is they didn't have any money after they left the White House. And Truman refused, and he had very little money to, ever, except the, the royalties for his autobiography, Truman refused to ever take any fee for a speech or to take any fee for serving on a board or making a phone call or all these things that now have become the, the standard way of after the presidency life for, where they really cash in because he felt that would be a disgrace for President of the United States to do that. And there, there is tangible evidence of the man's values, character, if you will. Also upstairs, if you go all the way up to the attic, there's big, the old-fashioned wicker uh, laundry baskets, huge, big baskets, overflowing with champagne bottles, still unopened, hundreds of them. And obviously, they, he and Best didn't like champagne. And they're being given to it all the time. Now, I didn't stop to see whether some of this was very extremely valuable or not. But it's just wonder. And old posters of Margaret's uh, the 
singing performances all over the attic floor, just like any of our attics. And it's also human. Um, when he left the White House, as you remember, as you know, the White House was completely gutted and redone while Truman was president. So they spent most of their presidency uh, living in Blair House across the street. And when the job was finished, the carpenters had built him a beautiful wooden desk out of all different kinds of woods from the old original White House. Real a, a treasure, to say the, say the least. And that's upstairs. But he'd wanted a pencil sharpener on the desk, so he'd just taken the pencil sharpener and the screws and his screwdriver and dr drilled it into the top of the desk. Uh, that pretentious he was not. Um, but the whole house is the way Bess's mother always had it. A absolutely the same. And it was always her house. And he had his little library corner, was his little cave, where he had his books and his whiskey and his comfortable chair and reading lamp. And that's where he retreated to. But the, the sense of his being a guest in her house is still very evident. Uh, just as um, FDR's mother was very evident at Hyde Park. But it's, it's that kind of detail and that kind of story that picks up for you with the staff of these wonderful houses that only begins to come into focus or the pieces of the puzzle start to fit together after several visits. And you really have to stop and look and think and listen, hear what the sounds are, and be there and see it in the light of, of spring or winter or whenever that things happen. And then you start thinking of who was in that house and what decisions were made in that house or the Adams house or any, almost any of these houses. And that's where I think we're going to take the next step and actually show you some images from the book. And, you know, this could go all sorts of places. We're just having a conversation, but we have some abstract sense of a structure in that we're going to go through a few of these houses one by one, but we're going to bounce around. And then there'll be time for questions and a book signing for those who want to stick around. But let's, um, what do we got? George Washington, Mount Vernon. Uh, I'm going to show you a couple of images, and then I'll stop and we'll, we'll talk. But um, these are some paintings. I did all of these on site, on plein air, as you will, uh, tying into that whole feeling of being there. You know, I could have taken a photograph and done it at home, and I'm sure people do very well with that. But that, to me, isn't, ins isn't as inspiring as actually painting from life. And all sorts of things about the light and so forth uh, are special when you're there. This is a view looking over the Potomac, uh, set down, as David was noticing the other uh, today, that I'm always shooting from up above, but that's because <laughs> I'm sitting on a stool uh, and not on a tripod or something with a camera. Um, this is a, just an example for those of you who've been to Mount Vernon, how there's a whole small village of, of outbuildings, uh, this vast farm. Uh, of, uh, and to their credit, they still have, I think, 10,000 acres. It's amazing. Uh, still intact. And these are some examples which I'll uh, <coughs> pepper out throughout the, uh, um, this talk of 
my illustrated letters, if you will. Um, and this is one in Mount Vernon. It starts with Dear David, and I don't ask you to read it all from here. But um, I uh, spent some time on the famous back porch. Now, imagine getting this in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> and that porch, by the way, it, there's no, no prior example of that. Washington was a terrific architect, and he's never gotten sufficient credit for it. Yes. That was a, an innovation. And, and his house, architecturally and otherwise, is, is, the, is his autobiography, because he never wrote an autobiography. And I'm not the first one to say this or observe it. There's a number of people who realize that this house, architecturally, as an example of what kind of mind he has. And I love that quote you use, that he'd rather be there at Mount Vernon on his farm, as he says, than be emperor of the world. And he meant it. Yeah. And, of course, he wouldn't want to be emperor of the world. <laughs> he could have been. He could have been our first emperor. Yes. Um, and this, I'm glad he's touching on this because, again, the, the idea of being there, I was noting that it was very hot, Virginia Day in July. Uh, oh, it must have been 95, but with the humidity, you know, it was un really unbearable. I was out there painting, looking for a tree to paint under. And all of that makes you aware, just that act of trying to find a spot <laughs> of shade, how hot it was. Now, I went to the slave quarters at Mount Vernon, saw where they lived, and I realized their job was often seven days a week, dawn till dusk. That's when they worked. And I was looking, as I say, for a place for shade. And when I couldn't find in the trees, under a tree, I went onto this veranda and sat there. And, and that was something I realized the slaves, of course, couldn't do that. They couldn't sit on George Washington's back porch. But again, you, that was that you know, sense of history, that you, a visceral response that I picked up. Uh, and I mentioned that in this letter, which is you know, going to be hard to read. You got to get the book to be. <laughs> I have good handwriting, as does David. So uh, we liked. We were commenting the other day. We're probably the only people left who will still write out in a letter Boston and then write out Massachusetts because <laughs> we like to practice our, our script. Okay, uh, this is another shot of Mount Vernon, and um, I think uh, this is the cover of the book. Uh, but very few people know, as David mentioned, every. Most people know that Jefferson's associated with the architecture of his house and spent 40 years at it. But David was helpful in, in instructing that towards me, that, uh, that perhaps not quite the extent of Jefferson, but, but Washington had his eye on every detail from the wallpaper to the trim to the modifications. This house was modified several times. And he was aware of Palladio, uh, which Jefferson was. Uh, being a general, he probably didn't have as much time to spend on it. But also, you wouldn't think that um, he wasn't as educated as, as Jefferson. He might not have appeared as refined, that he would know all these things. And, uh, well, for example, that cupola, which most people, most architects, would put in the middle of the roof, is not in the middle. Nor are the windows all equally spaced. And it makes that effect, though you don't see it that way, it makes it far more interesting and appealing. Uh, his, he loved architecture. And you know, you can tell a lot about people by what they love.
And David also notes, I, I remember in some of his books, that he likes to also read the books that those people read. Right. To get into the mind of the person. And in this case, you can see he was a frustrated architect. Um, now we go to Thomas Jefferson. These are more or less chronological. They're not in the book because the book was based on the order of when I saw the homes and the letters are dated as such. I didn't go to these all chronologically, but I thought for tonight. So, of course, Thomas Jefferson, 40 years building his house, refining it, obsessing about it, um, had his bricks made on his own property, um, did several versions, became a student of Palladio, became one of the great architects in American history. He only built four buildings, the state capitol in Virginia, this, uh, the others I'm blanking. He built another house for himself in the woods. Uh, well, in the whole, uh, the lawn at UVA at is all his. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. University of Virginia, of course, a masterpiece. Uh, and these single-handedly changed because these are the course of American architecture. This was a very original insight. And yes, they're using classical motifs, but he's using it in a way that no one ever has. The Greek combined with the vernacular and the brick combined with the wood. So it was a, a mixture that became a very American architecture. That's a um, wonderful drawing. Thank you. Thank you. Wonderful. This is a view of Monticello that is not always... Uh, seen in the certainly in the nickel or wherever that uh, you see views of, of Monticello. It's from the side, but I was interested in that. And the massing is very complicated. Uh, it's a real tour de force. Um, and this is the front view. Um, these are done, by the way, in watercolor, but done in some cases on already tinted paper for those of you who are uh, painters. And I used white as an application afterwards rather than leaving the white exposed when you use white paper. So it's a little different technique, a more traditional one from the 19th century. And then these letters opened up uh, uh, to some samples of, um, and of course his great, this is a great example of the original objects in the house uh, that are so well intact. Um, and the famous bed which he had designed. There's a lot of whimsy in this house. And that goes back to David's point, the character of the person. If you ever want to know about the character of a person, you go to Jefferson, because it's all sorts of inventions he puts in it, things that are very particular to him. This famous bed that he put in between, his, his own bed, between two rooms, were his expression of what he thought he might feel like doing the day, when he woke up in the morning. On one day, he might feel like he wants to go to the library and be, I guess, in his head an intellectual. The other side was a more leisurely room. I don't remember exactly what's in it. But there were two sides of his personality that would depend on how he felt that morning. Um, uh, and so that's, of course, intact. And this is a sample of a tiny little structure on the property that's all integrated with the main house where he and his wife spent uh, their honeymoon and also the first few years while the house was you know, uninhabitable. Um, they lived in parts of it, and then they added on. But um, this was his great, uh, you know, obsession. And uh, I thought, I think I mentioned these letters to David, that one of the things that I find so interesting about Jefferson was you, there's no human being that's been more meticulous about everything in his life. He kept diaries about every nail that he had built on the property. He had uh, that sort of thing done. 
also every slave and the details of that, of course. But um, every bit of wainscoting. So for some, and every also an incredible gardener. So all of the plants and the seeds. Are, now this is a mind that you would think if he was so wrapped up in these highly minute details, how could he think on much broader issues? What kind of mind could be open to these large ideas of the, of the declaration and so forth? You think you'd be so wrapped up in my, it doesn't usually go with that kind of a thinker. Um, but in his case, he was able to do both, uh, remarkably. Um, and um, that's one of the things I took away from uh, my experience there. And one more view. And uh, now this is a great topic of David's, of course, his book on John Adams, which was uh, so successful and made into a, a TV series. Um, you get two for one in Quincy, I'm sure some of you are <laughs> Uh, there's not as much information about John Quincy in the small salt box that he grew up in nearby, but um, going to Peacefield, um, as it's called, uh, a lot of the acreage is gone that was in the original farm. Uh, it's now down to, I don't think, more than five or ten acres. I think it once had 300, and there's a highway going by, so it's not the, the greatest setting anymore. But the house is in perfect shape, and they've done a great job restoring it. And... Uh, this is another view from the side. I'd like, to, I'd like to just uh, interrupt one minute yeah. to say that while you're looking at this after having looked at uh, Washington and Jefferson's homes, that John Adams was the only one of the founding fathers who never owned a slave as a matter of principle. And uh, his wife felt the same way. And I think that's something for those of us who live here in Massachusetts, to be very proud of. Um, he also kept wonderful diaries. And my favorite entry, which appears every so often, it simply says, one sentence, at home thinking. <laughs> Imagine if we had people like that in Washington today. <laughs> now, when you must have spent uh, weeks, months, years at this house, did you go, did they give you access to spend time in some of the rooms? Or, yes, indeed. Or that little library that's off to the side? Or? Yes, there's one stairway you're not allowed to walk up. Oh, really? Yeah. Did you ever find out why? And Judy Woodruff came to do something there when I was with her, and she started up the stairs, and I said, Judy, you're not allowed to go up those stairs. And she said, oh, it's all right, it's all right. So she kept, and the, the, the guide said, Mrs. Woodruff, you are not to go up those stairs. <laughs> she came back down. And then you sort of feel the ghosts uh, prevailing. That, wow. Uh, 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 but, oh, the, 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 the meetings that there's a wonderful, wonderful session that took place in one of the rooms where young Emerson went out to visit Adams and had a conversation. Wow. Oh, what I would give to have sat in on that. Hmm. Yeah. Right there, in that very room. And all the furniture and everything is exactly the real thing. Everything. And then you had that structure that housed the collection of the books, right, that one of the family members yes. built? What, what they're, all in, they're, they're all in the Boston Public Library. Oh, okay. Uh, John Adams left something like 3,700 books that he owned. He never had, any, like Truman, he never had any money. And that was a time when books were ex expensive, much more expensive than we 
are accustomed to, which is, again, an indication of how much books meant to him. And one of my favorite examples, a little book about that big, uh, Cicero's Lectures, and he got it when he was 14 years old. We don't know whether he bought it with his own money or it was given to him, but he, he wrote his name in it six, six times. That's, that's how proud he was to have owned that book. <laughs> There's a letter I found. Uh, you're talking about John Adams, right? Yes. There's a letter I found in this precocious son, John Quincy. You must look this up. It's, uh, it's in books of John Quincy's letters. He wrote this when he was not yet 10 years old, and you see the date. Yeah. The handwriting is great. And what he is saying, he is writing with such depth of thought. You would think this was a college student. You may know this letter. He's saying, Dad or Father, I'm halfway through Cicero, but I you know, can't get to the last page. I feel bad. I'm, I'm still working on it. What are you thinking about this, that, and the other thing? You can't believe it if you didn't see the date that it was a nine-and-a-half-year-old. <laughs> um, well, his, his father wrote him a letter one time when they were in Europe together about how he shouldn't just read what's prescribed by the curriculum of the schools he was in and that he should read poetry. And he said, you'll never be alone with a poet in your pocket. <laughs> and they were carried a little volume of poetry wherever you go. I think John Quincy may have been the most brilliant, intellectually most brilliant man, American ever to occupy the presidency. Wow. He was phenomenal, absolutely be, be, bre breathtaking. And those boyhood letters are a superb example. And he got that early education with and, his and, and again, he, they li he lived right in this house. Yes, that's right. And uh, he followed with uh, John Adams, I guess, across the Atlantic when he was yeah. ambassador to Russia? Or? No, no he, was, he was going over with his father when his father was during the revolution, oh, during the going revolution. to try to squeeze some money out of the French, yeah, which they succeeded at. <laughs> um, so this is a, 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 a still a distinguished home, but not as grand as, as Jefferson's. And, uh, no, it's on a village street, too. It's not on a grand hilltop away from everybody. Uh, uh, the way Jefferson, Jeff of course, inherited a lot of money. He lost a lot. And, and, and Washington's wife was very wealthy, so they had the means. Well, you were talking about how Jefferson kept a record of everything. Yeah. He, he has everything, every dime he ever spent, every dollar on every. But he never added it up. <laughs> no, true. Because <laughs> he, he was always in debt. All his whole life he was in debt. Uh, this is a great quote that's in the front of uh, the house in Peacefield in Quincy, Mass., once called Braintree. It is but the farm of a patriot. That's a that's right. quote of John Adams that they put outside uh, to honor him. These are little thumbnail sketches I made of the whole family of Abigail and uh, great, absolutely. And reading those letters of Abigail, they they never get old. Uh, they're extraordinary. The back and forth. Uh, this is just a, a scene of the living room, um, and this is the uh, the house that John Quincy Adams was born in when the family was just before they moved to that house. I've been showing you paintings of uh, John Adams was a young lawyer, and as you know, he defended the soldiers in the Boston massacre. Uh, the British soldiers. Um, but here he was having his first law office on the first floor of that salt box before they moved to Peacefield. And this is just another view 
of that. We should probably go on uh, to our next president, Teddy Roosevelt. And um, this house, he has a house which is very misleading, and I don't think <laughs> the Park Service wants to tell people. There's a house in New York City. It's, it's a national parks house that they say is Teddy Roosevelt's house. It, it wasn't the house he was born in. It's a replica. The house he was born in is a few blocks away and long since demolished. So I don't quite know what the game is there. I have, I'm sure it has a lot of his furniture and artifacts. You weren't supposed to say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily, I didn't choose that one as a result. I, and the much more uh, interesting house anyway, the house that really defines him, is the house at Sagamore Hill in Oyster Bay, Long Island which went through just a, recently a major renovation, just I think reopened, six, seven million dollars. But it's a great shingle-style house of the highest order. And to Teddy Roosevelt's taste, he picked a good architect, because uh, this was one of the great firms for residential architecture of the time. Dave and I were talking about this drawing I made. This is one I was very proud of, because um, this was an old beech tree that was there apparently when Teddy was there. I did the whole picture, and then I thought, I wanted to show the shadow on the house. But if you're a painter, you're thinking, uh-oh, I could screw this up royally by putting on too much paint and ruin the whole thing. Yeah, the tendencies of make it too dark, and you ruin it. They ruin yeah. it. So, uh, this, uh, this is a house that if you've never been there, go. It is, it is the story of Theodore Roosevelt and then some. It, he, <laughs> and he knew it. He knew it. He was filling it up with every possible example of animals he shot, places he went. It's just terrific. And then there's one little sitting room that his wife obviously had control of. And you, you enter a very different world. And in his, in his office, it's very touching. He has a portrait of his father hanging over uh, his desk. And the father's influence, the father's faith in him belief in him when he was a boy, when he was so troubled and scared of everything and sick and, and wasn't expected to live, really pulled him through. Father was a remarkable man. This is, this is a great, great destination for a good weekend trip. And this is Island. one that is full of original, uh, between this yes. and the Truman House and maybe Jefferson's and maybe Washington's, but of all the presidential homes, there's only four or five that have as many original artifacts and, and pieces from the family. And how he crammed as much as he did into one life. He died when he was only 60 years old. Yes. He burned like a high wattage bulb that just burned out fast. And you go in there and you whoa, how, how did one man ever get around all these places and so forth? And he loved poetry. Uh, yep. He apparently discovered uh, or made famous Edward Arlington Robinson, a poet yep. who was toiling away in obscure poetry journals, and Teddy Roosevelt wrote a review of one of yeah. his uh, poetry books. He was a speed reader before speed reading had been invented. Yes. It, no, he really was. He could read a book in a night easily and quote it five years later. Unbelievable. And, and, uh, and never stopped talking. Very restless as a result, <laughs> of course. Uh, very restless. But um, this was a house that he enjoyed very much on the Long Island Sound. I did some illustrated letters of that. These are from the early ones to David with a little floor plan. That's my architectural uh, side of me. Um, but this is one, I think, the living room that David's talking, or the, one of the studies uh, that Teddy uh, spent time in. Um, 
And all of this was touching on uh, some of the animals uh, on the wall. And, um, you know, he was a great hunter, <laughs> not very politically correct. Oh, this is my... Tell him what happened. Now, this is a funny story. Um, I was, this is the things I alluded to earlier, where, you know, when you're being at a place, things happen. I was sitting there, painting outdoors on the lawn, hot again. I'm always in the boiling hot all sun. By, all by yourself. All by myself. And there, was, there wasn't that many people there to speak of, a few people visiting on, on, on the front of the house. And all of a sudden, a voice behind me, I sometimes get this, you know, when I'm painting people to make comments. He says, good job, good job, and in this deep basso voice. And I, I turned around, and there was a guy. It was the image of Teddy Roosevelt. This was somebody dressed up in those knickers and the hat and the boots. And, uh, you know, if there was ever an out-of-body experience, that was it. And I thought maybe the sun was getting to me. Um, but this is a man who comes once a month. He's an actor, and he's been doing this for years. Some of these homes have these things, I guess, not many. Uh, but he dresses the part and, you know, excites interest among the, the guests who come. And it just blew me away. And uh, we talked a little bit. And uh, he had the spectacles. I mean, he had it down. Uh, so um, that was a great story. And I put that in this letter, and, and, and David enjoyed that. So, um, Calvin Coolidge, not a president's on everyone's tongue these days, but um, interesting man who I don't think was interesting until I went to his house. Uh, Silent Cal, as he was known, a man of very little charisma apparently. But what's interesting is you see why he doesn't have that charisma, not in a negative way, but why he was a quiet man. He was a real hard-nosed Yankee who grew up in a town the size of this room in Plymouth Notch, Vermont, and the little village that he lives in, it's not Colonial Williamsburg, but it might as well be. There are seven or eight structures on the junction in Nowheresville that has remained intact, and the house that he's born in and everything is there. He still has family members there. I went there actually with my son um, in the four feet of snow. Uh, because it was on my list. I had to do one of you know, Coolidge, and I had limited time to get this book done. So I said, well, let's go. And there wasn't that much snow where we were in Connecticut, but by the time we got to Vermont, we saw how much. And a man took us around, and um, you'll see in the letters more of the examples of the snow. But it's very interesting because this is where he came from with very little social interaction of, of a lot of people. He didn't say much back then with no one to talk to. Uh, and, you know, deep um, cold winters, um, sometimes 30 below, one of the... Uh, Have you got the bedroom where there's no heat? Yeah, I'll get to yeah. in these letters. This is the stove. There's only one stove in the house. Uh, so the bedrooms have no fireplaces. Uh, this uh, brown structure off of the main uh, structure on the left, that was a general store his father ran, and then they lived in the back in that brown um, uh, clabbered house, and... Uh, there's a picture here I'll just show you. That's the bedroom where it was cold as heck when I was there, but you can imagine it was 30 below and no heat. So you also get the hard scrabble world that he was accustomed to as a young man. This is a scene, I don't know if some of you know this, but um, when Harding died in office, uh, they had to get Coolidge to be, he was the vice president. And where was he? You know, he was up in the... <laughs> 
in Vermont, uh, and they had to trace uh, trace him down, and um, they couldn't get him to Washington for whatever reason. I've forgotten. So they did the inaugural ceremony, if you will, um, or the oath of office in that house, and they got his father, who was a justice of peace. I mean, you're talking about a town of 12 people, but his father was a justice of the peace. So his father swore him in, and I had my son stand in the same spot. You can stand there. Uh, with a little table and the lamp, they've set up a little replica, I think with the same furniture. Uh, but he's actually a man of a lot of sense of humor, uh, Yankee humor. Um, and I got David so interested, he wants to go there someday. So <laughs> hopefully uh, this will incite people. This is the house that he moved from that small clobbered one to this across the street. That's how small the town was. And um, he had a lot of chores uh, living on this uh, small farm. Um, now we come to Teddy Roosevelt's great cousin, FDR. And we go to upstate New York, where this is a major museum slash house site, where there's a whole learning center and library and everything. And um, this was for, for a long time the house of not Franklin Roosevelt, but his mother. And they, Eleanor and Franklin, lived in Franklin's mother's house while his mother was still alive, <laughs> living in the house, too. So he was picking up earlier on these formidable portraits of, or formidable portraits of uh, Sarah Roosevelt, which Eleanor had to see every morning, <laughs> uh, staring at her. Uh, and then she might have been at the top of the third floor or something. Um, I did an a different view than most people see of that house. That was the front just before this. This is down below, looking up. Um, down, going toward the Hudson, which nobody goes down there. And just so you really get a feeling of the scale of this immense place. And a kind of a hodgepodge, because yeah. the front is kind of classical, which everyone sees. Nobody sees this backside. Um, so that was kind of a dramatic moment for me. Uh, this is the barn where they kept their horses. Ellen great, had some great favorites. Um, and this is a library with the wheelchair for Franklin. Um, and, of course, his famous cigar. And a car that was outfitted for him for all of his, you know, nobody knew he was a cripple. How they hid that from the public, uh, from the public is, is, is fascinating. And then um, this I, David, enjoyed was I showed along the Hudson all the different towns, a lot of them having the Dutch heritage that Roosevelt was so proud of in his family that went back many, many generations, the 1600s. Um, and this is the intercom yeah. of all the different rooms. <laughs> I, I love that. I just, <laughs> it says so much about the Downton Abbey, the kind of life that they lived. Yeah. Now, have you spent a fair amount of time there? Too? Yes. Yep. Um, and this is just one last view of it. Um, Beautiful. But um, it's uh, it's a place now that, unfortunately, the family has sold off a lot of parcels, so they managed to make it feel like it's still a private estate. But when the trees and the leaves are down in the winter, you can see there's areas that have been developed nearby. Adam, I think that we you better move along okay. because I don't want them to miss 
the later ones. Okay, um, well, here's Harry. Yeah, uh, that's wonderful. This is Independence, um, Missouri. Now, what's interesting is this is on a very small lot. They were talking about less than half an acre. Uh, so you also wouldn't necessarily pick that up if you saw a photograph of this house. Very modest. This was Best Truman's family's house that Harry lived in. Um, and this is that kitchen that's kept intact that David is referring to with the cracked linoleum. Right to the left, I drew a picture of it. You'd have to have a, you know, a telescope from where you are to see it. But she, best after Harry died, was still keeping a calendar and crossing off every morning the date. And they've left the last date that she crossed out the day before she died in 1982, and the calendar is still sitting. So that brings it to life. This is Independence, Missouri, downtown. Margaret Truman, who they were so uh, tight with as a family, there's just the three together. Um, the library that was built in the 19, I guess, 50s uh, um, for Harry Truman's library was about a mile away. He actually worked in his own presidential library for a few years, getting out of the house. And lastly, this um, wrought iron fence is a great story because Harry Truman went back home to Independence where he grew up and he thought he could go back and relax. Well, this is the days of celebrity, celebrity worship was really just really developing. Now these people were great public figures with the mass media and the highways that could go out and see them and people would come on, take patches of his lawn, they um, took pieces of the house for a man who had a very low poll rating at the end. He was still a celebrity, and he, had, he, he didn't have the money to build a fence. He hated to do it because he, this is a town he grew up in, but he could no longer stand it of people coming up. So the government actually paid for a wrought iron fence, which still exists today, but wraps around the house. Um, did you have any quick comments about Harry Truman? Maybe you said some. Well, I just love the, the line you said. I tried never to forget who I was and where I came from and where I'd go back to. And it says a lot about him, and he, that's what he did, went back there. And when you walk <clears> around <throat> the town, he was famous for his walks. I did the same thing. And as David recounts in his book on Truman, you know, he would see people in the town, and he'd wave to them, he'd have coffee with them. This was after he was president. Uh, I mean, who would do that today? You'd have six bodyguards around you, you know. Um, I, um, I had the chance to interview a minister who used to walk with him when he took his walks, and he told me about which direction they went and so forth. And I said, uh, um, was there ever anything that he said that struck you as a little bit odd or revealing? And he said, yes, there was. There's a very old tree over here on Elm Street. It's the oldest tree in town. And every morning he'd speak to it. I said, he talked to the tree? He said, yes. I said, what did he say? He said, you're doing a good job. <laughs> <laughs> Truman had a great respect for people who did a good job. Yeah. Uh, his hat and cane and an overcoat are still hanging on the, uh, the back door uh, on a wall, so you really get a feeling of his presence there. Um, and um, here we're going to John F. Kennedy's place. Now, this is where David really also came very handy. 
I was at Brookline being, thinking very industrious. I went out there and did the house, you know, that John F. Kennedy was born in. And David said after I came back, he said, well, that's great, Adam, that's great. But, you know, he only lived there for three years. So you don't really get a sense of who John F. Kennedy is from that house. There are some things in there that we'll touch on. He said, you really need to get to the house in Hyannisport where he lived with Joe and Rose whenever he spent time there. That's where you find out about John Kennedy. And I thought, well, David, that's great, but that's not a public house. <laughs> the Kennedys still own that as a private home. He said, well, write them a letter and see what you can do. Well, I wrote them a letter. Long story short, I did get access to that house and got a wonderful tour of it. And um, I will go into that uh, right now. This is the house in Brookline, which many of you, I'm sure, have seen. Uh, a modest house. Uh, Joe hadn't made his vast fortune by then. Um, but uh, there are a couple of details in that house. Also, the street, you know, tiny lots. The backyard is nothing to speak of. They moved to a slightly larger house a few years later, but it's very modest beginnings. This is an image that I enjoyed. The Kennedys had their dining room, which was all laid out the way it was, because the house was sold, but then it was rebought 50 years later by the National Parks, and they asked Rose to come back and redecorate it the way she remembered it 50 years ago, down to the wallpaper. The Jordan Marsh decorators she used, she brought them back. But there was a room that they recreated, or, or Rose did, in the dining room. And then, with all the table settings, there's a little table by the window, much smaller, with two chairs. It's an exact replica of the dining room table with the same forks and knives, the same silverware, the same napkin rings, and the same chairs. This was meant for Joe, the elder Kennedy, and JFK to sit at, to experience what it was like, not to sit in a high chair, but to be little adults and to understand mm -hmm. how to open up a napkin ring. They weren't allowed to sit at the main table until they were seven. That was whatever rule they had. But they had an experience of that mature sophistication of what it's like to sit at a, a dining room table. Uh, as I say, nowadays, they put you in a high chair at that age. Um, so that was a touching thing that I never forgot and put that in there. Hyannisport was fascinating, of course, because it was also entree into a private world that is still in the Kennedy family, and this was a living room, um, and the famous rocking chairs that he sat in over there. A couple of things that were fun was the man who showed me around, who was part of the Edward Kennedy Institute and a friend of the family's, he said, Adam, do you want to see the attic? And I said, well, sure. <laughs> so he took me up there, and the Kennedys have saved everything up there. There's Rose's wheelchair. There's Joe's wheelchair. It's still up there. There's a television from 1950. I mean, what it's <laughs> doing up there, I have no idea. Uh, but also carefully labeled the carpets the, from different rooms, clothes, magazines. And after that was great. Um, and then he said, well, do you want to see the basement? And I thought, okay, <laughs> well, what's down there? Uh, this is a picture of Kennedy, uh, Kennedy on a boat I did. Um, at the basement, he takes me down. I'm not knowing what to expect. Uh, and he shows me a room, which is, in effect, the first home theater in America. It was done in the 20s. Joe, as many of you know, was in the film business, made a lot of money in the early films. And he was getting first-run films from Hollywood and setting up the earliest movie projectors at the time to show his family for fun, and he had a movie kind of seat set up there. There's like 10 or 12 of these, and, you, and there's still the movie equipment is all dusty and everything. But um, what was remarkable is that Joe was believed in talkies, so-called. 
everyone else said, there's no way you're going to make money in talking films. You know, silent films is what it was. He believed in that and um, made a small fortune. Um, but being on the lawn, we'll get now to the next one, but being on the lawn of the Kennedy estate is also just a piece of experience uh, right by the water because little things like understanding those touch football games that they've had every year. The man who showed me said, Adam, do you want to see what happened three days ago here? This is the Kennedys are not in the limelight anymore. There's nobody coming to photograph them. They said, this is what they did two days ago. They had a touch football game. There's 30 <laughs> of them on the lawn. And that's why I positioned myself to paint those three gables. Um, and, you know, Joe Kennedy in this new book, I think the patrician or something, uh, sheds a different light on a man who's been maligned as an awful son of a bitch, excuse me. Uh, I, I don't, that's obviously a large part of him. But there's another part that's very interesting and uh, worth revisiting. Now we get to another aspect of this where David said to me at one point, Adam, have you done any living presidents? And I said, again, how do you do that? Well, write them a letter, see what happened. So um, he said, you can use my name or not use my name. Well, uh, interesting <coughs> enough, I wrote to George Bush Sr. and Barbara and asked to do their house in Kennebunkport. And um, they wrote me back this wonderful letter, not filtered through uh, Secret Service and communication directors, saying, you're welcome to come. The house is closed. We're not going to be there, but through the Secret Service and whatnot, please spend as much time as you want there on a given day or two days. So I went up there and um, uh, did a series of paintings. Again, I'm always taking these crazy vantage points. But down from the rocks looking up, and it was late October, almost November, freezing. I mean, it just happened to be a very freezing last day of October. I think you can see this. And the wind off the ocean is ah. extraordinary. And the tide was coming in, and the yeah. Secret Service came out. You know, at 4 o'clock, <laughs> you're going to go out with it if you don't wrap this up. I have a picture of myself here <laughs> that the, um, the gardener... I love the, glo I love the gloves. You know. <laughs> there you go. You see the gloves. How do you paint with gloves on? <laughs> you know, those kind of Charles Dickens gloves where the fingers come through. Oh. And I was sitting on the rocks, and my paintbrushes were always falling and slipping in between the crevices. Uh, but then again, there's, this is 120 years of, of Bush family history at this place, Walker's Point. Is named after a cousin of Bush named Walker. And um, so being there, you get a flavor that you wouldn't normally have, of course, of the Bush family. Um, and I did a series of paintings, uh, and this is Kenny Bunkport, and another series of that. Now, I must say that... That's wonderful. This is David McCullough at his best. I was in the Martha's Vineyard, I don't know, a month ago. David calls me up, uh, and he says... Adam, you know, I'm um, going to be heading to Kennebunkport to see George and Barbara, who I've known over the years, old friends. I pay my respects and thank them for their service and, uh, and see them every couple of years, maybe more. But um, I thought, would it be okay if I take the book on the presidents and, and show that to them? I said, David, that's fine, <laughs> by all means. Um, he said, I thought I'd give them as a little gift when I arrived. So... Uh, being the good friend that he is, because uh, I was wondering what happened the next day, whether they saw it or were disinterested or he did not bring it or whatever. He called me up uh, the next day and he said, Adam, I got a great story for you. We went there. The, the Bushers loved it. Uh, 
I've, uh, Rosalie, his wife, over here read passages from the text for them, and they, they thoroughly enjoyed it. And they left it on the coffee table, and uh, it's now in their collection. And just to follow up on that, I just went to David's house uh, yesterday, and he said, Adam, I got a letter for you. And Barbara Bush had written this very touching letter to David and Rosalie, thanking them for coming and thanking them for the book, which meant so much to giving it to the George Bush Library. So if, uh, despite anyone's politics, I must say the Bush family has been incredibly gracious uh, to me, uh, obviously to David, but he knows them a long time, and he does, they haven't met me. Uh, which leads me to, as we're wrapping things up, to George W. Bush. And I think because I had done George Sr., somehow I think George Jr. had found out. I can't remember all the details, but um, they invited me out to do their house in Crawford, their, their summer house or weekend place in uh, Texas. And um, About as different from Walker's Point as you could get. Yes. Yeah. Very different. And um, again, this is how magic happens because... I didn't know what to expect from this. I was given various Secret Service information, write my small biography of myself to, to make this all work. But I also started just with a letter. This was no long intermediary middle people. I just wrote a letter to George Bush, um, and I got some response from one of his secretaries that said I could do this. So I went, and all I was aware of was that I was going to have access to the house to paint an image from whatever vantage point I want. They didn't tell me I was going to meet any of them. Um, and I arrived, and I was driven up this long causeway. Uh, it's two and a half thousand acres, <laughs> which actually in Texas is quite small. But And Laura came out and was very gracious, and she showed me around the interior and then had me paint outside. Actually, the house is very modern, very tastefully done, and very uh, sustainable, very... Uh, eco-friendly. Uh, so for those who think that he might not uh, have such a place, it, I think it even has solar panels. I mean, the thing is geared up for that. Uh, she let me go paint. And as I was painting, uh, an hour into it, I figured I'd met Laura, and that was wonderful, but I didn't expect to see anybody more in the family, and I would do my thing and leave. And then somebody starts ambling up the path, and I couldn't quite make out who it was uh, because it also had that kind of outdoor gear of one of the caretakers, uh, or maybe one of the Secret Service, I didn't know. But sure enough, it was George W. And he comes Did you up think maybe he was an impersonator? There you go. That's a good one. Um, but sure enough, it was George W. And uh, he said, God, you know, I didn't even know you were coming here. Um, this is fabulous. I mean, what are you doing? You know? And, uh, and I told him what the project was. And... Um, we chatted about Yale, of course, he went to when I teach, and we yik-yaked about that. He was very interested in what I was doing. He took a real particular interest in the style of painting I was doing, and he said, well, would you be interested in seeing some of the, my paintings? I don't know if some of you know he's now <laughs> painting. And we went in the house, and we spent some time looking at his work, and then uh, he said, gosh, you know, if I'd only known, we could have spent more time, uh, but I'm heading off to Dallas, and, you know, good luck with this, great meeting you. He said, but if you ever feel like coming to give me a lesson in watercolor, I ought to get you back one day. And we left it at that. And uh, I was in his bedroom at the time, actually. He was heading off to take a shower. Uh, he said, I got to go. But um, maybe something would be worked out. Well, six months later, long story short, 
he invited me down to uh, give him a lesson. Uh, and he said, I want you to come down for two or three nights and, and over Columbus Day weekend. And uh, that's again through a secretary. Uh, and so I showed up, and it was an incredible experience because I gave him, I said, I'm going to give you George. I called him George after like three hours. That's what <laughs> is kind of interesting about his personality. And maybe to my credit, I made him feel comfortable. <clears throat> but I said, I'm going to give you in three days what I give my Yale students in 13 weeks. Are you okay with that? And he said, let's go. So the funny thing is I was suddenly in an authoritative superior position, and he was one, I, uh, which brush do I use? You know, is it this paper? You know, he was asking me. So that was very funny. And he took it very seriously, and we spent two or three days painting. Um, and when I said, now, George, are you ready to paint outdoors? And he said, I'm ready. <clears throat> so we went out, and we got in his Jeep. I was driving with him. And um, I said, we were looking for spots to paint on this 2,000-acre ramp. And I said, that looks like a good place, George. And he swerved the Jeep. And then behind us, there were three other Jeeps following right behind, which I didn't know. <laughs> uh, which, of course, Secret Service, I, at the time, I didn't make it. They're not dressed in jackets and ties, you know. But the, I said, George, what are they afraid of? You're going to be taken away by aliens or <laughs> drop dead on the spot? He said, both. <laughs> um, now, somebody has said to me, you know, they were worried maybe about me. As, you know, I guess an artist with a, you know... Uh, a bullet uh, in a, in a uh, brush might kill him. I don't know. Uh, but we painted outdoors. And a funny line that I'll remember, I, this is off the record, so keep this all here. <laughs> they asked me to keep it off the record, but since we're not writing this down, I can share a couple of things. Very funny, we were sitting there, and he was painting away, and he was doing a very good job. And I said, uh, he was getting frustrated. And he said, well, you're doing a much better job. I said, well, George, I mean, Rome wasn't built in a day. You know, <laughs> you're, you're getting there. We've only been doing this for two days. He paints oils quite well, actually. This was a different medium. But he said, ah, I don't know, rip it up. I said, don't rip it up. You know, just finish it, and we'll go on to the next one. He said, Adam, you don't understand. I'm a perfectionist. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and then the rest of the time, which was so fun, was that um, we just had lunch and dinner, and uh, just the two of us had breakfast on several occasions. Uh, very down-to-earth, as you might think or not think. And again, politics can sometimes intervene in all of this. I, uh, uh, but if you're able to see somebody in a different light in the setting, he was a very gracious host who was always aware of trying to make me comfortable and to accommodate me and not delegating to other staff members. And what's interesting is he's a very good artist. Now... There are a lot of paintings that I saw of his, and some are not good, but there are some that are first-rate. And like all artists, you, can't, you need an editor to edit them. And if somebody, if I put a show together and you didn't necessarily have preconceptions of, of who you would, you would really consider, this isn't just a painter that I, is a president. This is a, this is a very interesting painter. Uh, one last note on that is I... Um, in the guest house where I was staying, just about 100 yards from the main house, I said to him uh, one day, I said, George, it's a very good painting in the... I thought it was like um, Rockwell Kent, if some of you know his work. Very strong colors, I said. Um, Is that a Rockwell Kent? That's a very nice painting. (laughs) He said, no, but you can go take a look at uh, who who painted it when you get in there. And I went there and I was trying to find the signature. (laughs) And there was a seashore scene. Uh, I looked and I said... 
There was no signature. And then I looked in the corner, it said 43. (laughs) (laughs) What he knows himself as. Um, And um, there were lots of other stories there, but, and I'm probably forgetting all of them, but um, we talked a lot about art, and when we didn't do that, we talked about the, the presidential history. Never mentioned Obama once. That wasn't what he was interested in pontificating about current events. Uh, and um, so I, I, I very much, and Bloor was, was, was fabulous. I don't know if any of you have met either one of them, but um, uh, so that was a great experience. And to, find out, to finish this off, there's still another living president that I was tapped into was, uh, oh, I'm sorry, this is, I'll just go through this real quick. This is the house, a very modern house that George Bush lives in. Uh, I only showed a part of it, but um, it has a big overhanging roof. And uh, this is when you first enter Crawford. (laughs) A huge uh, concrete thing comes out of the ground, so stop. Kind of vague, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) And, of course, you have to get checked under your car for explosives and whatnot. This is the town of Crawford, which is, you know, Zerosville, outside and there's a little flag on one of the parts of the branch, and I was like, what's that? There's a number on there. Uh, and it was said 43. Uh, just to give you a sense of scale, when I was driving with him in the, the Jeep, I said, two and a half thousand acres, that's a lot to maintain. He says, I know, Adam, but this is tiny in Texas. I know a man who has 250,000 acres and someone who has over a million acres. So his name is King, by the way. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, uh, now, Jimmy Carter... So I wrote to him, I don't know, I guess I have a magic touch, I don't know. I don't, it doesn't seem very hard once I've written them to get responses, but I got a nice response, always first through a secretary of some kind of these figures, but they invited me down and Carter agreed to meet with me. It's a much less of an intimate kind of thing I had with the Bushes because we arranged just to meet for an hour at his house in Plains, Georgia, but I thought that was fine. He's 91 or something, and... Um, you know, by going there, again, of being there, of going to Plains, Georgia, where this man has never left. He went to the White House, he went to the Naval Academy, and maybe someplace else. But for 90 years, on and off, he and his wife have never left. She was born there, too. And their parents were born there. And the house they live in is a mile from the house that he was born in. It was built in 1960. It was a very modest ranch. I spent time painting the old house where he was born which is now a state park of some kind, the farm. And um, we had a very nice exchange. I had read his book on the way down called An Hour Before Daylight about his upbringing. That area of South Georgia was so remote in the 20s that even though the rest of America had electricity and plumbing, uh, even the poor people, they didn't have any of that. And he wasn't dirt poor by any means. His father was, had a nice farm, but he was very frugal and didn't feel they needed to have more than this bungalow. Um, where they grew sugarcane and, and pecans. Um, but um, as you'll see here, that's the house. Uh, on, uh, they've kept the acreage more or less intact. Uh, it's not the house he lives in now, but it's the house he was born in. Some farm buildings. And right across the street from the house on the right is a railroad track that's no longer used. But uh, I said, what was it like growing up next to a railroad track? Well... You know, we, as kids, we'd go and we'd jump out when the freight trains come and count them. And it would take 10 or 15 minutes back then. There would be 150, 200 cars. And we'd always count them. Um, 
and I would hear the whistles at night and all of that. Um, and this is Plains, Georgia, 650 people. Um, <laughs> you'd think you'd go crazy after all these years. <laughs> Finally, the windmill um, was brought in on the farm and it got some plumbing. Uh, and this is just one other view of the main house. And he was very gracious. I came with a jacket and tie, and my wife said, Jimmy Carter's not going to wear a jacket and tie. It's also 100 degrees, you know. <laughs> and, and I just felt I was seeing a president, so I did. And, of course, he didn't have a jacket and tie. He was just in a regular uh, Oxford kind of button shirt. Uh, but it was very touching. We were almost, what I found interesting is we were, he sat very close to me. I was on the couch. He was on his chair. We almost were touching knees. Now, this is a man who for many years was protected for, by thousands of people and secret detail and all this. And I'm basically now, and of course many years later, but I'm always touching these with somebody he doesn't know, uh, was that kind of intimacy was, was fascinating. And he was very open. As I say, I didn't get to know him in any great extent like, like George W., but it was the first president I remember as a kid being fully aware of in the newspapers. Uh, Richard Nixon was more of a cartoon character uh, in those days, but Jimmy Carter was one I knew um, from, from the papers. But that, I don't know, did you have any thoughts about these living presidents? Or, uh? No, but isn't he something? <laughs> isn't he something? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.